Timothy. But please stand with me out of love and reverence for God's word as we read it. For God does indeed speak to us through his word. This is on page 977 if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide. Hear now God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through this gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. And so ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he would bless it. Oh, Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. We do pray that you would bless your word, that you you would help us to be willing to submit to it, to put ourselves under your word. We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. Give us open ears and open hearts that we might be trained and instructed and corrected and if necessary, rebuked, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if there is something that you believe in so strongly that you would be willing to go to prison for that very thing. There is something, some amount of credibility that someone gets if they believe something enough that they're willing to go to prison over that very thing. And particularly for us as 21st century Americans, we are suffering adverse, I would say. It's probably always been the case, Uh, probably not localized to us, but we certainly don't like to suffer in any way of our lives. Um, In fact, I would say that we probably define success in our lives. Someone is successful if they've figured out how to navigate life in such a way that they are able to avoid suffering. Maybe they've accumulated enough financial security that they will not suffer financially and have to make hard choices. They have a successful home life if their their life is comfortable enough and there's not conflict. You're able to navigate the, the difficulties of interpersonal relationships. Or you're successful at work if you don't have to suffer by an oppressive boss. You have maybe have independence enough to be able to exercise your autonomy. Um, And so we define success that way. And sometimes when people suffer, we start asking, well, what what went wrong? What's the problem? And I think the case was the same in Paul's day because Paul was in prison when he wrote the book of Ephesians. We talked about that. Probably a Roman prison. 
at this time, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus, which he had planted several years before, and he had ministered probably seven years or so before, and they know that he is in prison, and he was so instrumental in the life of their church and in this growing uh, gospel movement that was taking place, but Paul's in prison, and so this whole passage that we've read seems to be an encouragement from Paul to say, don't be discouraged, don't lose heart. This imprisonment isn't the end of all things. Paul himself has peered into the depths of God's eternal plan, and he understands the calling that he has on his life, and he has a different viewpoint on his suffering than I think you or I would, and certainly what different from what the Ephesian church has. And when you have somebody that has that kind of perspective, it's important for us to listen to what they might have to say so that we might be able to be instructed and trained by that so that we can understand our own suffering for the sake of the gospel. And I think if we were to summarize what Paul has to say for us in this passage, it would simply be this, is that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who suffer for the sake of Christ, that suffering produces glory. Suffering for Christ produces glory. And if we look at this passage, we'll break it down in kind of three simple headings. First, there's Paul's suffering, which produces glory, because of Christ's suffering, which produces glory, which, by way of application, causes our suffering to produce glory when we suffer for the sake of Christ. So it starts by talking about Paul's suffering for the sake of glory. And the passage starts and stops pretty abruptly. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he says, assuming, and he moves off on to another point. Now we're getting very close to the start of a football season. And for those of us who are fans of football, there's nothing more frustrating than watching our team start to make some progress on offense only to be mired by penalties. And one of the most hated penalties is when the offense is clicking and you're moving the ball down the field and, the, and everybody lines up and right before the ball is snapped, one of the offensive linemen twitches his shoulder and the lineman throws out the, or the referee throws out his yellow flag, blows the whistle and calls out, false start, five-yard penalty. And what happens here is Paul has almost got some kind of false start of his own where he begins to... He's reflecting on this great privilege that Gentiles have in being grafted in with Jews and recipients of these great promises. And he's about ready to break into prayer, which he gets to uh, later, uh, which we'll get to next week, starting in verse 14. And he's about to pray, but then he stops. And he goes off into this parenthesis, this long explanation, which takes up the rest of our passage. But this isn't a false start that is a, a penalty to us. This is for our glory and benefit. And what he says is he wants to give us a proper perspective on his imprisonment. And he starts off by saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So Paul is imprisoned by the Roman government, and yet he views himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And what he what he, he recognizes is that the only reason why he is in the predicament that he is in is because of Christ Jesus. First of all, because of Christ Jesus' call to himself. There was no way that he was going to be 
in a position where he is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, such that he stirs up Jews who want to have him arrested and thrown into a prison. And so Christ Jesus has put that call on his life. But secondly, he's put a call of a ministry on his life. And so he is in prison because of Christ Jesus. But it's not just in a prisoner for Christ Jesus, but he's prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So he reminds these Ephesians that it could be on behalf of or because of you Gentiles. He's there because of them, because of his ministry to them. And he wants to encourage them by saying, this is, this is for you. And he, that's where he ends it. If you look at verse 13, he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffer, suffering for you, which is uh, your glory. So the reason why he's in prison, he's reminding them, is on their behalf. Um, and so he wants them to understand this great gift that they have, which has resulted in his imprisonment. And he, go, and if you remember uh, what we just read in Acts chapter nine, he, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, called Paul to himself, and he said, "This is my chosen instrument to the Gentiles, and I will show Paul how much he is going to suffer for my sake." And that's exactly what he's experiencing right now. Paul has been called to minister to the Gentiles, and as a result, he is now suffering in this Roman prison. And so then he continues with his parenthesis, and he says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now he calls himself a steward. That may be a word that hopefully you know. But a steward is somebody that is given ownership, or not ownership, but um, responsibility over something in a household. And that steward must care for that aspect of the master's household in a way that the master would have him do it. And what Paul is saying is that he has been given a stewardship of God's grace for them. So he has been entrusted with this gift of God's grace. For them, And he breaks down his argument kind of in, it's right there. He says, it's a grace that was given to me, but it was given to me for you. So first he, he begins by helping them to see that you know that I've received this gift. And secondly, that gift was given to me to give to you. And that's why I'm in prison. Because notice what he says. He says, uh, you've heard, you've, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now kids, there's a word mystery, and maybe when I was reading it, you heard it about four times. Now when we hear mystery here, it's not like a Scooby-Doo kind of spooky mystery. It's a word that we've seen earlier in the book of Ephesians, and really what it means is something that has been concealed, something that is unknown except for the person who knows it. Um, First Corinthians talks about who knows a person's thoughts except for that person. Um, those thoughts are a mystery. You don't know your spouse's thoughts. They're a mystery to you unless they reveal them to you. And that's what Paul is talking about, is that there was a mystery that was made known 
to Paul by revelation. This is something that had to be revealed to Paul. And, and he says, and it has been revealed to me as I've written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now he says, he describes this as the mystery of Christ. He's starting to unpack what this is. It's a mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he still hasn't defined what this mystery is, but there's something that some ministry of grace that has been entrusted to him, which he now calls the mystery of Christ, and it's something new. It's a new revelation. It was not made known in the former generations, but it has now been revealed. And he says to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, if you've been attending the Acts Bible study, you've, we've seen this holy apostles and prophets in the past. And these prophets are not the Old Testament prophets, but these are New Testament preachers, itinerant preachers. And what he's saying is that now in this New Testament economy, God has revealed this mystery of Christ to the apostles and prophets, but he sees himself as the one who has received this par excellence. Paul is the master builder, the chief apostle he sees, the chief one to receive this, this mystery. And then he describes the mystery. Because his mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So students, as we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians, if someone were to ask you what is the primary theme of the book of Ephesians, I hope you would immediately answer the primary theme is our union with Christ. That as believers, we are united to Christ in his death and burial and resurrection and ascension. And we saw, saw that all through particularly chapter 1 where there were all these in him, in Christ, in him, over and over and over again. We are united to Christ. And if you remember, when we looked in chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, we said the Apostle Paul, and sometimes in his excitement, he would create words or it seemed like he was making up words, the words where he said that we were raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly realms, these with words, if you will, of our union with Christ. Well, I hope you understand that just as much as it is important for us to understand that we are united to Christ, Ephesians teaches that we are united to one another in the church by faith. And we saw that in chapter 2 when it says that Jew and Gentile were created, put together in one new man so that we together are one body, one temple, with one spirit, with one Lord, and we were saved together in him. But now we see here in this passage some more of those with words, but they're with one another. It says the mystery is that we Gentiles are, first it says, our translation says fellow heirs. It should be Heirs with the Jews. It's one word. And uh, we are, the Jews were recipients of heirs that God, or an inheritance that God had promised. And what Paul is saying is that part of this mystery is that Gentiles are recipients of that inheritance too. This glorious inheritance in the saints, which we learned about in chapter 1, is ours in Christ Jesus, along with the Jews. Then the second word, 
is one that Paul kind of makes up. It says, uh, our translations say, members of the same body. The word is really with body, like we're body parts with, um, or we're of the same body with Jews. So God has taken Jew and Gentile, all of us, and put us together in one body, united us in a way that is inseparable, and united to Christ together as one body. So we're not merely in recipients or heirs of this inheritance as servants or slaves, as that could be the case, but we are actually of one person. So we are children together. We are first-class family members together. And as a result of receiving that inheritance and being one body, we are partakers of the promise with Jews together. And this promise, this partaking, is in Christ Jesus together through the gospel. And so there's this glorious union that we have with one another. We've been united to one another in a beautiful way. And so this mystery that Paul is so excited about is that as Gentiles, we have the fullness of God's promises, which have been proclaimed from the beginning of time up until now. Those are absolutely and truly ours on the same par as all of God's people. And this is a mystery of Christ, as he says, because those who have these things are because of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a, these are promises only by the gospel. So that's the mystery, the revelation that he was given, but he goes on to say the reason he received it was to give it to these Gentiles. And that's where he goes in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me. So he was made a minister. The word is the same word that we would get our word deacon, meaning a servant, a he, he's one that gets to serve up this grace to these Gentiles. And he says, I, this was given to me as a gift. And he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Notice the humility of the Apostle Paul. I think we would probably say that Apostle Paul was the greatest of the apostles. Because of all that we have in God's word that is from his mouth or his pen, from his mind, certainly this revelation that he's received. But he says, no, I was the very least of the saints. And it is remarkable. I mean, we read it in Acts chapter 9. It's remarkable to think about. Paul was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had zeal to destroy the church. He asked for letters to go and tear people away from their homes and throw them into prison. He wanted to squelch this gospel message. And yet, God chose to give him a gift of grace, to call him to himself, but also to say, no, you are going to be my chosen instrument to proclaim this message. You wanted to squelch it, you're going to proclaim it. You're going to be the chief proponent of it. And what's more, you may be the Jew of Jews, you're going to the Gentiles. And you're going to show them that they are fellow heirs in Christ Jesus with you. 
And so he sees that. He says, I'm, I'm the very least of all the saints. And then he says, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so he wants to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. These riches that he's been talking about all throughout the book of Ephesians of how we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It is ours in him. And it says, and to bring to light. And that is the nature of revelation. That he, is, he has received this revelation. He has this understanding which God has given to him. And now through his preaching, he's going to bring to light this mystery to everyone, it says. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. Says, and then he says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this, this term manifold wisdom, I don't know, kids, if that makes a whole lot of sense to you, perhaps a better term, better translation would be multicolored wisdom or beautiful complexity of God's wisdom. And so he says, so he's, he's, he's been sent to preach this gospel, this mystery, to make, help people understand, to, to bring light. So the plan is seen, the mystery is seen, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So what is that manifold wisdom? If you think about it, well, let's start with this. It says, known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Perhaps you've read uh, the Apostle Peter who he said that because of this gospel message, there is something that the angels long to stoop down and look. They're so enamored by the, the beauty and the glory of God's plan that these angels want to see it and marvel at this great God. And that might be part of what Paul has in mind, but I think maybe more in line with what he's been talking about with these rulers and authorities, is he's talking about the sinister rulers and authorities, uh, even uh, Satan and his fallen angels. Because think of the, um, the story of Job. Perhaps you know that story. And Job was um, considered a righteous man by God. And you see at the beginning of Job, God is there in his heavenly court, and uh, he's declaring how righteous Job is. And Satan, the accuser, says, oh, but the only reason why he's righteous is because you've protected him. You've given him uh, your, your grace. You've made sure that he's wealthy. You've given him everything he wants. And God says, okay, you want to take that away? Take it away. And he's willing to let Job, who is his workmanship, be tested. Because the point is not that Job can withstand this work but that God's workmanship in Job can withstand the trials that would come from these spiritual forces, that God will be faithful to his people as he has promised. And I think that's what Paul has in mind, is that through the church, God's manifold wisdom is being made known. Because if you follow the story, God created mankind perfect and righteous and holy, and yet sin entered the world as Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and 
all mankind fell. And then there was disunity. There was once was unity, but now there's disunity and there's fighting and there's hatred towards God. And yet God in his grace sends his son to bear the sins of his people and to reconcile them first to God, but also in one person to unify them into one body, one body of believers. And so now there is true redemption and restoration. There is something even far richer than what was before the fall. Now we are proclaiming Christ as our Savior and proclaiming God as our Redeemer. And we have this hope of eternal life, which is there. And so this is God's manifold wisdom, his beautiful complexity of what he is doing in all of creation. And this is a a plan, it says, this is according to his eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is something that God has planned from eternity past, but has worked it out in the context of Christ Jesus. But notice it's also working out in the context of Paul's day because Paul is receiving this and he's proclaiming it to the Ephesians. The Ephesians have come to faith as a result of Paul's proclamation of this glorious gospel. They have light understanding this mystery. They understand Christ as their Savior. And so God, even through the church, even through Paul's work, this manifold wisdom is being worked out as sinners are coming to faith through the church. And it says, and there's restoration, because in Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This boldness is, uh, intends to mean something like, if I have boldness to be able to talk with you face to face, and to argue my case, speak with you as a friend. Think of a great king who has said, you may come into my presence, and you may speak to me. But Paul says, because of Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access to come to God the Father and to speak with him. We have access into the eternal throne. And so we have been reconciled to him. We are friends with God, and we have peace with him. And he says all this, remember, in the context of saying, so I ask you, because of this wonderful gift, not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. Because this is for you, for your glory. Paul recognizes that this ministry that he has is not just true, but it is their salvation. It is their hope. It is their glory. And it is theirs because God has given it to them. But he, he recognizes, and I, I think we should too, that it's not Paul's suffering in and of itself that is their glory. It is his suffering on behalf of that gospel message. It is that gospel message that is their glory. And that gospel message only exists because Christ's suffering is our glory. He is proclaiming these things which are realized in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came to live and to suffer and to die to rescue his people, to set them free from the chains of their sin. And so God has done that in Christ Jesus. And as we learned earlier in the book, 
We have been united to him in his death and in his resurrection. And so through Christ and only through Christ, his suffering is producing that glory. And so there's comfort not merely in the suffering, but in the suffering of Christ, uh, that this, which has produced Paul's suffering. Because of this gospel message, Paul has proclaimed this message and been hated for it and been sent to prison. But it is a wonderful privilege that he's been given in that. Now, um, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on Ephesians, points out that God has given to us, to the church, patterns. We see, we see patterns all throughout Scripture. Um, and the primary pattern that we see is the pattern that God the Father gave to the Son. What God the Father gave to the Son is the pattern for the church. And so we ought to see that God called Christ to suffer for his people And as a result, I think the Apostle Paul sees that because Christ suffered, so he was called to suffer for his people. It was for their glory. And and we see this throughout Scripture, but one notable passage is in Colossians chapter 1. And Paul says this. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, let me say that again. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And so what the Apostle Paul seems to be saying is that Christ came to die for his people, for all people. And yet, because Paul is united to Christ and is a member of his body, that pattern holds for Paul that because he is a minister to the Gentiles, he is, he is called to suffer for the sake of the Gentiles. That he is participating in Christ's suffering on their behalf. It's not just that his message was hated, but because Christ suffered for his people, and there are people yet to be called in, Paul suffers for them. And so by extension, it would follow that we're called to suffer as well. Suffer for the sake of Christ. Suffer for the sake of the body. Just as Paul was called to suffer because of Christ, we're called to suffer for the sake of the glory of those whom God puts into our lives. So whether the people in your family or on your street or in your workplace or people here in the town of Prosper, we have been entrusted, as the Apostle Paul was, not with a message for all Gentiles, but we're given the gospel message to proclaim Christ from the rooftops, to proclaim the glory that freedom and hope only exists in Christ Jesus. And that's not a popular message. But Scripture says this over and over again. Romans 8 says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. Philippians 1 says, it's been granted to us not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer, will be persecuted. And there's this pattern over and over. Peter talks about Christ suffered, left us an example. Paul says, imitate my way of life. He tells 
Timothy and Titus set an example for the believers, and certainly that involves suffering, suffering for the sake of the gospel, not suffering for the sake of suffering. Uh, scripture says don't suffer because you're a, you know, a thief or a meddler or something like that. Our foolishness can cause us to suffer. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about proclaim, suffering for the sake of the gospel, believing this gospel so firmly that we are willing to go in harm's way for our brothers and sisters, or even for those who aren't yet our brothers and sisters. But do you see how that's a glorious privilege? Do you see how Paul says, you know, don't, don't lose heart. This is your glory. This is the gospel. I'm willing to go to prison for this because you understand it. And that's where he's about to pray. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. You get it. You understand this gospel message. So God is at work, and he's been at work through my ministry. And brothers and sisters, wouldn't that be what we would want to hear? That our labor is not in vain, that our ministry is bearing fruit as sinners come to bow their knee before Christ Jesus and see him as their only hope for salvation. It is, it is a wonderful thing. But in a world that wants to cast off God as a myth and wants to demonize the church as bigoted, we have a message that is unpopular and we are an unpopular people. But friends, this is the only hope that we have. This is the only hope of salvation. It is Christ and Christ alone. We must be willing to call sin, sin, and proclaim grace to sinners. To lead people to the only source of hope, which is Christ Jesus. We have been given unsearchable riches in Christ, but not just given for ourselves, given to give for their glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful gift even the gift of being able to suffer for the sake of the saints. Would you help us to be bold enough in our faith to do just that, to bold, be bold enough in our words to live this out in a way that's pleasing to you. And Father, if there's anyone that has not yet bowed the knee to Christ, if they don't know this hope, this surety of salvation in him, they don't know this joy, Father, would you... Give them eyes. Would you illuminate them through this gospel message that we've spoken this morning for your glory's sake. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.